Every old-timer in Alum Creek has their own version of what had happened. Hell, even half the young people think they know how it went down. And don't listen to anybody that wasn't there. It's like that game we used to play as youngsters, where you take a piece of yarn tied to two cups and pass it around a circle, repeating some message. In telephone, that's what we called it. Only difference is that in telephone, the story starts as something simple and gets more and more ridiculous as it goes. But this story, it gets more and more implausible the younger the teller. Almost like it's too much to be believed. And so listeners correct for realism when they retell it so it doesn't sound so crazy. My own grandson told me the other day that I remember it wrong. That it was all just some tragic attack of an albino bear. Something ain't right about that. A 12-year-old telling his grandfather what he should and shouldn't remember. So don't listen to the young people. They weren't there. And truth is, most of us old folk weren't there neither. The way we talk, you'd guess every miner in town was caught up in it all. Like how every boomer would tell you he was at Woodstock. It was only maybe 20 of us. Of those, a sight more than half are dead and buried. Except for old Rosie Sang. The bastard had himself cremated. I'll start over. You'll forgive me if I repeat myself. 1956. Like near every other young man, I worked the mines. Hard work, but it was honest. Plus, nothing else paid as good. Nothing I was qualified for, at any rate. And I had a wife, a child, and another one on the way to support. And besides, my friends were miners. Ralph Hadfield, Roshin Sang, and Sid McNamara. We would usually hit the bars after work. Me leaving early on account of the family, and Rossi would order juice. Now Ralph didn't care much for the bartender. Most of us didn't. Jesse Feld tended the bar not because he was especially good at it, but because he didn't have the stomach for man's work. He even hired kids to mow his lawn and do landscaping. Wasn't ashamed of it neither. Thought it made it smarter than the rest of us. I don't know if I ever caught Jesse in town without some fool sideways grin. Ralph suspected that Feld got his job by sleeping with the widowed bar owner. I don't think so, but it wasn't impossible. Jesse had taken the first fruits, if you'll beg my pardon. I have at least two girls in town and had nearly half a dozen ex or current lovers. He was smooth with women and had a pretty face. High cheekbones and a sharp nose. That was more than enough of a reason for most of us to dislike him. Ralph Enmore claimed to hate felt the most. Y'all who aren't from West Virginia probably know all about the Hatfields and McCoys. But that's water under the bridge compared to the Hatfields and the Felts. You see, during the Cold Wars, Hatfield fought for the unions and felt on the mines. But if he gave Jesse a hard time about it, he would come back with some quip. Felt was always a funny guy. And that combined with the fact that he never really got angry. He kept the rest of us truly hating him. Save for Ralph. June 10th was when it all started. Cicada season. 
and they were bad that year too. And so many damn insects you could hydroplant on their guts if your tire treads were bare. The mine was a haven from them. For the workday at least, you didn't have to listen to the never-ending screech. But this season, the mine was even worse on the outside. It echoed. It isn't even pretty sounding like a cricket. At least not to me. So it's no wonder that we worked deeper in than usual. And we got far enough that we couldn't hear a peep and went to work. A couple hours into the day, I spotted a neck into a new room. But this one was real narrow. As in too narrow for most folks to fit through. But Rashi was a skinny guy and could damn near fit through the bars of a baby crib. Anytime there's a crack the rest of us were nervous to slide through, saying I'd covered. We waited around for no more than ten minutes before Rossi squeezed back towards us. I had never seen the man so excited. Stop all of the mining, he said with a thick accent. It's a treasure room. In most mines, the demolitions expert calculates the proper amount of black powder and then everybody draws straws on who has to light the fuse. But most mines didn't employ Sid McNamara, the craziest son of a bitch that I ever knew. Sid did all the blasting himself. He loved to be as close to the explosion as sanity allowed. Most of us figured he'd go the way of his Ireland-born grandfather and die in such a blast. But he blew the neck wide open without a vent, and we all had to look for ourselves at Rashi's treasure room. What we saw was a gold mine. Well, no it wasn't. It was a coal mine, but it was a hell of a lot of coal and uh, mighty easy to collect. The owner was ecstatic. He hired everybody in town not already working for him at twice the normal rate. Even Fel couldn't resist a few weeks of hard labor for that kind of cash. We worked like dogs all week, taking as many hours at double pay as possible. Predictably, Jesse was the laziest of us all, but we needed him to have enough energy to pour our drinks after work so no one said a thing. Now, I'm not sure who saw it. I want to say it was Felt who came strutting back with a proud smile to tell us all it was fine. If my memory serves and it was Felt, that's what they call cruel irony. Anyway, Felt whoever had found yet another neck, one wide enough that anybody could walk through. The new room was small but filled with coal, and loose coal too. That should have made us wary. Cold just doesn't sit up on the surface, stacked any deep, ready to be scooped into bags. But we were greedy and now we have two rooms to work. A handful of guys I barely knew worked the smaller room. We called it the pirate's chest. I'll admit that we were greedy. We robbed pillars and were too aggressive with the cutting machine. But that room should have not collapsed. I'd been in natural collapses before, and this was not one of them. Some of the miners would tell you that everything was quiet and normal like right up until the cave-in. But no, there was one sound. That sound haunts me even still. Most rational explanation is the men in the pirates just shouted before the rocks gave way. But I know what I heard. It was a scream alright, but not a human one. It wasn't a shout of anger or fear. If you ask me how I figure a demon might yawn, I'd tell you that I don't have to guess. 
I know. That sound. That was us waking something up. Something buried underneath all of that coal. The three or so men working the treasure room got sucked into that big pile of black like and there was some giant hoover underneath. And then the collapse started. It was the big chamber that went first. The one me and my buddies were working. That hallway Sid had blasted out fell in on itself without so much as a groan to warn us. Most were able to run through the corridor in time and make it out. A couple were buried in the rubble. Crushed flat like pancakes. Hooper Collins had his leg pinned under a boulder which would be the death of Emma. 19 or 20 I think. Guy had a pretty wife and had no kids by her yet. Death sure knows how to pick Emma. Anyway, when the dust had cleared and I was through coughing, I noticed poor Hooper hollering and screaming. I did my damnedest to pull the rock off his femur. I hadn't finished before Ralph screamed and pointed. A couple of the new recruits had rushed into that small room to avoid the boulders. Stupid bastards. Now the screams that I heard next were definitely human. I didn't watch, but you can't mistake the sound of flesh being yanked apart. So I gave up on Collins and I ran for the rest of the survivors. I tried to forget how he begged me not to run. The words that he used. I failed at that. I ran. Not far, just around the corner. And soon every healthy body was huddled around in the cave and desperately trying to dig out. It was futile, but I jumped in anyway. What else could I do? When the screams stopped, the eating began. It must have gone on for half an hour. Tearing, crackling, suckling. We all knew what the entree was, and each of us dug all the faster. Eventually, of course, the panic wore off and we had time to think. What was back there? And more importantly, what would it do when it finished its meal? And we all knew that we hadn't made any progress escaping. West Virginians are just stubborn, I guess. As horrifying as the rending sounds were, the silence was far worse. The dinner was done. Hopefully it was filling. Damn it, everybody stop. We need to figure this out. Screamed Sid McNamara. The Irishman held up his lantern and we all faced the light. Over a dozen of us were huddled, some crying and others had shat themselves, but all of us were shaking as if naked in a blizzard. We took a break from the frantic digging and we shut up for a moment. All but Rodney, the preacher's son, who fell to his knees and wouldn't stop praying no matter what the rest of us did. Rodney wasn't half as holy as his father, but at least one of us asking heaven for help couldn't have hurt. Finally, someone spoke. Ralph Hatfield. He always had a clear head, even did a couple years of college. He kept his voice lower than Sid had, what with the creature right around the corner, and so we leaned in. It'll take days to dig ourselves out. That thing will get us if the dehydration doesn't, and it's guarding the TNT, if that becomes our only option. We can't post a watch. Guards to make sure that it doesn't come in here. 
It was Jess who had said it. Trying poorly to maintain his composure. Are you volunteering? You'd rather stand around than dig like the rest of us, said Ralph. No, I... Most of the water and lights are in the room with it, said Sid. We've got it outnumbered. Can it die? Of course, said Ralph. I've read a whole issue on undiscovered species in the National Geographic. Most life in the ocean is unknown, and there's all sorts of cave creatures that we never knew about. The thing is an animal, and animals can die. What's it eat then? I asked. No one responded for a minute, and then Ralph nodded. The coal. Coal's energy too. Made out of carbon just like living things. There are beasts out there that digest minerals. They call them lithophiles. Now, I can't speak to the accuracy of Ralph's claims or even the exactness of my memory. But I would like to think that Ralph was right. It was an animal. Don't know that I believe it though. Around that time, Rodney stopped muttering and shouted at us. It's no animal. It's no natural thing at all. Shut up, man. It's Sid through his teeth. It's a demon drawn to our greed and wickedness. Rod, please. Said Jesse Felt in a whisper. We need to repent. We need... I think it was Sid that whopped him in the back of the head. Not hard enough to knock Rodney unconscious, but with plenty of force to knock him over and shut him the hell up. Shit. I said and a few of us took a step back. Right away, Rosny knelt to tend to Rod and give McNamara a sharp glare. No one else seemed to care. I don't know how many animals can survive being hit by eight pickaxes, said someone whose name and face that I can't recall. Nine by my count. It was Ralph. He didn't have to tell us the math, and that there weren't enough axes for everybody. Rod could barely walk and Paul had a broken arm, which left me and two others to fight with rocks. Sang was a little luckier. He kept this special blade on him everywhere he went. They called it a kerpin, and its longest dagger with all sorts of ornament. In the 50s in Appalachia, a knife wouldn't bother anybody. Shoot, back then it wasn't uncommon for a guy to walk through town with a six-shooter on his belt. None of us had a gun, of course, but I would have traded my rock for a good knife any day. Biggest threat here is gonna be friendly fire. Who was the fellow who said that? Hmm, I can't get his name. I remember his stories and that he's been a sergeant in Korea. Damn, he just won a hell of a thing. Anyway, the vet advised us a bit. Watch where you swing, but don't stop hitting it until it stops moving. We quickly drew up a battle plan with Sarge's help. Who would approach from one angle and pairing up with battle partners? The longer we waited, the more we feared that we'd lose our nerve. That the creature hadn't made a sound in so long only added to our worries. Was it planning something? Was it even smart enough for plans? And as a unit, we rounded the bend and shined our lanterns the best we could. Half the standing lights were out, 
Another remainder, most were knocked over. Little strips of white shined in random directions like some sort of plaid pattern. But unless it was hiding in the shadows, there was no creature. Blood and gut trails told a different story. That the thing had drugged the dead into the pirate's chest to feast. Hooper's leg was still pinned under the boulder, but there was no sign of the rest of him. No one was eager to be first in line, so we crept towards what had to be the monster's lair real slow. Weapons raised. About halfway there, something dropped onto us. Or rather, onto Sarge. We hadn't figured an attack from above, so the whole plan was shot. Half of us ran, half attacked. I did a little bit of both. Before I go any farther, I try my best to describe the creature. Just keep in mind, this was nearly 30 years ago. It moved faster than a rabbit, light was scarce, and I only ever got a real good look at it once, at least with my eyes. I can't count how many times I've seen it in my dreams. But I suppose I saw it well enough for any man. I'm certain that it was tall. But how tall I can't even guess cause it was bent over with the twistiest damn pretzel of a spine that I ever saw. At least four legs and as many arms. And at the end of each limb was a dozen fingers. Or maybe they were antennas, tentacles, and those spindly legs and a shrimp. Shit, I don't know. I know that it didn't have eyes. I remember that well. It only had one thing on its head. A mouth. A cross between the tail of an earwig and a crocodile's maw. But boy was it skinny. Too skinny for how strong it was. And the flesh didn't look so tough. Translucent. Almost worm-like. Fortunately for it though, it had armor. And chitin. I think it's called if it was a bug. But the plates intersected more like the shell of a crawfish. Any more description would be stretching the truth on my part. Whatever it was, insect or crustacean or demon, it tore the sarge into part in seconds. I couldn't bring myself to charging close, so I threw my rock at its head. I may as well have thrown a beach ball. Even the axe wings of hearted men were making cracks in the carapace. I grabbed the pick that Sarge had dropped or had his hand and lopped off. Either way, I stepped in when the thing grabbed Ralph. I would like to think that I would have helped if Rossi hadn't acted first. Sang stuck that holy dagger of his into the monster easiest cutting cake. Your guess is as good as mine as why it worked. Maybe the dagger was better quality iron than the picks. Maybe something else. But the thing recoiled without making a sound and Ralph was free. Lucky stab or not, two more bodies lay at the thing's feet. And there was nothing to do but run again. At least that's what everybody thought who wasn't Sid McNamara. In the ruckus, he managed to find and light a stick of dynamite. Keep your distance, boys. You shouted running back into the fight. Don't get any romantic notion that Sid was a martyr. The man knew as well as anybody that he had no intention of dying. Just like he had no plan to slip on a pile of guts, twist his ankle too bad to stand and lose his grip on the explosive, and fail to catch the monster in the blast. All but one or two of us cleared the explosion, 
and not counting Sarah. Who went out like everybody else had guessed, but in circumstances an oracle couldn't have predicted. At least we were alive. Our eyes and ears were none too happy, but the monster seemed worse off. Skittering about in random directions, tripping over itself. A sound-driven creature, blinded by the noise. Maybe. It didn't even react to Rodney screaming for heaven to save him. We didn't have time to play guessing games or grieve our friend's death. We had to leave. Ralph spotted our way out. A chimney blown open by the blast. We'd have to brave the middle of the room, praying the monster would avoid us with its random shuffles. And it would take two men to reach the opening, one on the shoulders of the other. What choice did we have? And we went for it. I recall Jesse felt weeping as he climbed onto my back, and for a moment I judged him for it. Until I realized that I was crying too. And to his credit, Felt found a ledge once through the opening and did his best to pull the rest of us up. Halfway through, Felton sang and a couple of others had reached safety, but the monster grabbed someone. Matthew Stewart, if I believe. No one watched him die, and no one tried to help him. I confess feeling a bit of relief, thinking that the catch would have distracted long enough for us to climb. A sinful thought, sure, but I've committed worse. Eight or nine of us were left, and of those, we had two lanterns. We shined them upwards, and would you believe that we couldn't see a roof? I don't know the odds of that. The passage appearing right above us. A straight shot to the surface. Praise Jesus, we've been delivered, said Rod. No one could really argue the point. We climbed, and I don't know for how long. It was tiring work, but adrenaline's a powerful thing. At first, we braced our backs to one wall and we used our legs across the opposite. And then it turned into more like a steep slope we had to scale with our hands. A few outcroppings gave us chances to rest. Sometimes the mouth would widen, and we could offer support to the weaker man. Others it would narrow and we'd have to squeeze through one at a time. And one such shaft we lost a man. A wide frame can be a blessing or a curse in a mine, and Liam was just too stout to fit. Even with someone pushing from under and pulling from above, it didn't take long until Liam was wedged so tight he couldn't even go back down. He would have needed to break his shoulders to move, and Ralph offered to do just that, to yank his arms out of his sockets, that is. And keep on climbing how? Liam asked. And then, still stuck, the man pulled out a pocket knife and he cut his own throat. No! Rodney screamed, and all I could think was how fortunate I was to be above him rather than below. It did take breaking his arms to dislodge his corpse. He didn't mind, and just fell ten feet before sticking someplace else. There'd be time to pray for his soul later, and we kept on for as long as we could, which wasn't long. Now, a few minutes later we came across the worst thing any of us had ever seen, not counting the monster. The ceiling. On cue, one of the lanterns went out. It can't be, whispered Rodney. We're trapped. 
The odds of it coming out to the surface were always slim. Said Ralph, no emotion in his voice. I just wish we had a few cigarettes to share. What time is it? I asked. Dark, probably by now, said Ralph. Where Jesse's confidence came from, I can't say. But I envied it. Maybe there's already a rescue party digging through the rubble. We'll all be home by the morning. Is that what you want, Felt? It was Ralph. All of our friends and fathers getting themselves killed. No, of course not. Come on, Hatfield. I just mean... Shut up. Said Ralph, and he did. No one said much of anything for the next hour. A few sobs and even a couple of grim chuckles. I reckon most of us accepted the inevitable in that time. A small part of me held out hope for rescue. There was no way to warn the rescuers if anyone was coming. Nothing to do at all but wait to make peace with our creator. And then the last light went out. I doubt that you've ever experienced a dark like that one. Sure, maybe you experienced pitch black. Maybe you've been underground. But I'm talking about the kind of dark that fills your insides. Where even a pair of eyes three inches from yours doesn't glow. The kind of dark so deep you know you won't ever see light again. The little room that we had sat ourselves in felt an awful lot smaller all of a sudden. And the rock scraping my back became harder to ignore. There's no one on this earth who I'd wish that sort of death upon. Being buried alive. I would have traded anything just to stretch my arms out. In a way, it was almost like drowning. I have nearly drowned once. Twelve years old. And trying to impress Susan by swimming across the lake. It was fun at first. Until it hit me like a baseball bat, how much water was between my feet and the lake's floor. I remember clearly how oppressive all that water felt as my head sunk under it. An older girl had saved me then, and I didn't even have the wherewithal to be embarrassed by that. Dying underground was similar. All the stone above and below me for who knows how far. But no 11th grader was coming this time. Of all the things to reach out in mercy... It was the moon. Sang took off his boots and his jacket, spit on his palms, and he steeled himself. Rossi, I said. I have faith too. I'll be back, he said, with a whole bunch of people. And guns, added Ralph. And guns, Rashi smiled. And before we left, he paused. I thought that he was second-guessing himself. And then he handed me his knife. I thought your religion said that Joyce had to carry this. Sane just laughed. And then up he went. We couldn't see him climb. Mind, he blocked out the light. But we listened for minutes as he wiggled through the impossibly small opening. At some point, his grunt stopped and I feared he had suffocated himself. But then he shouted down to us. I made it and I'll be back soon. There still wasn't much conversation as we waited, but at least it no longer felt like drowning. Thank you, thank you, I'm done with drinking, I'm done with gambling, I'll never stray from my wife again. Rod prayed. Speak for yourself, said a fellow that I can't remember. 
The first thing I'm doing when I get out of here is having a cold beer. Make that three. A few of us laughed. A lot louder than the joke was funny. But then I heard it. Shh. I said and everybody clammed up quick. The air wasn't quiet though. We all could hear it. Liam's flesh tearing. And then being swallowed. No, no. Said Rodney. We've been delivered. Why is it back? We were delivered. Sing's coming with guns. Said Felt. He'll make it back fast. It took that thing a while to eat the poor fellas last time. We have time. It had more than one body to eat last time. Said Ralph. What if it finishes before he returns? I'm not sure if I thought of it on my own. Or if it was what Ralph was trying to imply. But a way to buy us a few very precious minutes crossed my mind. I didn't voice the plan though. It was just too damn mean. Rodney voiced it for me though. An offering. He said. That thing down there, it's a devil. A demonic spirit. We don't know that. Said Ralph. Rodney continued. It's a demon if there ever was one. Demons are drawn to wickedness like moss to the flame. Someone brought it here, and only an offering will satisfy it. An evil offering for an evil thing. What are you trying to say, Rod? Asked Jesse Felt. No one answered for a moment, but the silence was broken by a bone crackling. Marrow being sucked. The monster was wrapping up with his meal. Maybe you're right, Rod, said Ralph. Maybe this devil wanted a sacrifice all along. Come on, Ralph, you don't believe in that sort of superstition, said Jesse with something that may have been a chortle under different circumstances. Oh, I'm not sure what I believe anymore, but I know that this thing is hungry, and I've got a pretty strong notion who the most wicked man among us is. He comes from a long line of wicked folk. The next minute or two was a blur, probably because I've tried to block it out. But like most of everything I've tried in my life, I didn't do it well enough. Please understand, I don't remember laying a finger on felt, cross my heart and swear my children. The way I remember it is I stood back and I watched. I even tried to reason with Ralph and the others to leave felt be. I've gone over it a thousand times in my head, maybe a hundred thousand. And I still don't remember myself as a murderer. But maybe the mind is more powerful than the soul. Able to change memories that are far too horrible to recall. Because I do remember my knuckles stained in blood. Half mine and half his. I remember looking at that flat as a washboard face. The punches of a dozen men having removed any evidence of Felt's high cheekbones and pointy nose. I remember how he looked white as a marble in the moonlight. I remember his screams, his why, why, and fellas stop, fellas, and I remember when words were replaced by pitiful gargles. Much worse than the creature, it's that memory which haunts me. I can forget it most days, but I remember every night. Whiskey helps a little, and that's how you know if the old timer telling you the story was actually there. That's how you can be sure. 
Before we tossed the body down the hole, we nodded to each other in a silent pack not to tell a soul what had happened. We weren't even supposed to talk about it with each other. That was the unspoken vow. So if somebody knows about felt, they were there, no mistake. I have often wondered if I could have stopped it. I knew it was wrong and I remember protesting some. I had the dagger. And I knew it didn't care for loud sounds. It could be if I was braver, I could have used the knife and the knowledge to fight the monster off. But if I stood in the way of the mob, would they have killed us both? No, however you cut it, I was a coward. I am a coward. I would have buckled for sure. I just wish Stang hadn't left for help. He wouldn't have let it happen. Rashi was a good man. Made good on his word too. But the guns proved unnecessary. The rescue party never came across the creature. Coming straight back to the crag and digging us out. I'm guessing the monster left one. Felt so many people milling around above. But it wasn't in the mine. When the townsfolk went back to recover what little was left of the corpses... Most of the survivors skipped town, moving with barely a goodbye to the friends and relatives they grew up with. One came back eventually, but the rest I never saw again. It was just as well. With the biggest mine shut down, there was less work. The owner of the mines talked about reopening a time or two, and clearing the rubble. Most of the workers threatened to strike if he did. I had switched my trades by then. Spent the next 20 years in lumber, but the mine's still buried. The way I hear it, kids go up there sometimes, to the collapsed mine. See who's brave enough to hike in and touch the big, cursed rock pile. The parents say that it's dangerous. The cave-ins and rattlers and such. And grandparents say it's dangerous too, but for different reasons. It's still out there somewhere. Maybe it's found another cavern to call its home. Or maybe it never liked to be underground, and it lives in some forest. Before we came along, my guess is that it was trapped. And we loosed it upon the world. I guess I'll never know. I'm not sure that I want to. I'll be dead soon in a box or in an urn. Maybe Rashi has the right of it. Buried things have a tendency not to stay buried. I would have myself burned too, if it didn't cause an uproar at the church. Funny, why should I care? Probably stepped inside that building less than a hundred times, and those just for weddings and funerals and Easter Sundays. There'd be a scandal all the same. I never made much trouble alive. I figure no use in starting after I die. Telling you the story, the whole story, even the worst bits is my kind of penance. People should know what's out there in the dark as much as they should know what we did. On Judgment Day, when I have to look felt in the eye and make account of how I lived, the things that I've done, at least I can say I told it like it happened. Not until the end, of course. I guess I kept quiet about my sins during the golden years. So if the good judge seems fit to damn me, well, I guess I can't protest all too much. Maybe in whatever hell I'm heading for, I'll meet the creature again.